Today's sermon text comes from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steve. He is risen. So great that we get to do this once a year. So great we get to celebrate once a year. But hopefully we get to celebrate every Sunday, right? Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Well, my name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here, and good morning to each of you. Um, again, I love every Sunday, but this is a particularly exciting Sunday, a special day of celebration that Christ has risen. He's risen for me, and he's risen for you. If this is your first time with us, or if you're, if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you've come and chosen to be with us. Hopefully you'll find us to be the kind of people, an ordinary bunch of people who are trying to be real people, 
uh, who are pursuing a very extraordinary God together. Um, but I trust, I trust that, that the worship, the music, the, the words that we're going to speak, the scriptures that were read are, are going to be a gift to your soul and your heart this morning as we celebrate and remember that Christ is risen. Well, um, I don't know if you've ever seen something or, um, you know, experienced something, maybe, maybe watched something that has unalterably changed the way you look at something or, or the way you perceive the world or the way you engage with the world. I had something like that happen to me in, in 1998. I um, was transitioning from my six-year career in the Air Force, and I got an opportunity to have an interview in Erie, Pennsylvania. So they flew me there for a management of a production management job uh, position with a company called Vandy Camps. Now, for those of you who may not be frequent uh, tenders to the aisle, the frozen aisle at Publix, Vandy Camps is a production company, a food production company that makes fish. So I, I got the opportunity to, to, to tour the facility and um, they showed me all around. I hadn't done a lot of research before I got there. Uh, what, I, what I discovered is um, an overwhelming and consuming smell of, you wouldn't believe it, fish. I mean, everywhere, bathrooms, offices, there was fish everywhere. And of course, my, uh, my 24-year-old Self, having now girded my way through six years in the military, thought I can handle anything, but I could not handle Vandy Camps. <laughs> no, no. No, in addition to the, to the smell, um, I got to witness how they make the fish sticks. I got a tour. I got to walk around as they, as they cut, as they breaded, as they fried, as they froze, boxed, put it on a truck. I got to... Um, wear that fancy hairnet, because the last thing you want is hair in your fish, right? So hairnet, and, and the best part, though, was this, this peculiar, thin film on the ground. It was a, a little slippery, a little slimy, a little greasy, and I just had to walk around trying not to fall. So what you're, what you're gonna, we won't believe is that I didn't take the job. I know, and probably, you know, as equally surprising, I have never eaten processed fish again. Some of you may have toured now. Okay, by the way, I'm a pastor, and so I do, I do recognize that it is distinctly possible, and I want to be very sensitive, that, that some of you are planning on having the crusty 10-pack of, you know, of Vandy Camp's chicken, I'm sorry, fish today. If, if that's what I did and I ruined your, your, your Easter, I, I apologize. That was not my intent. But it doesn't have to be um, just something that you see live, right? That's one of the gifts of, of the documentary for us. We, we get to see behind the curtain of the reality of what's really going on. Uh, a few years ago, if you'll remember, there was a, was a food documentary called Food, Inc. that came out. And, and if, you, if you team it with uh, a, a very uh, famous, probably industry-changing documentary called Supersize Me, well, you'll never eat a Big Mac again, right? I mean, like, it's just, it would, it's absolutely horrific to realize what goes on behind the scenes or what goes on in your body when you take some of those things in. Now, to be clear, if you're getting off on an exit and there's just a McDonald's there, then it doesn't count. You can eat there and it's fine. But other than that, supersize me, no, no, no. Uh, one particular documentary that had a significant impact on me was uh, one called uh, The True Cost. 
a few years ago, a, a filmmaker by the name of Andrew Morgan, who happened to be one of my um, students back when I was a youth pastor. He's now a filmmaker out in LA. He, he put this, um, this documentary together. You can actually see it on Netflix. Um, and it talks about what goes on in the, in the fashion industry, kind of the behind the scenes, the, the challenges and the not so good things there. Had a pretty profound effect on me. I, I would say that it is... It's altered the way I view fashion. It's altered the way I view clothing in general. And it's altered the way I purchase clothing. It had a real effect on me. I'm I'm an altered consumer because of it. I'm a, a changed man in this way. And isn't that how it works? Isn't that true of of all of us? What creates these changes has to be something substantial, something something particularly true, the veracity of which is going to capture our hearts, is going to grab all our souls, is going to have to have power. Of course, the more vivid the truth, the more compelling the experience is, well, the more reaching it will have in its effects on our life. Matter of fact, the more convincing proof, there is no more convincing proof than real changes happen in my heart, or real changes happen in my mind, than when it starts affecting my affections, it starts affecting the way I make decisions. It starts affecting my behavior. In other words, the way you know something real has happened in you, has changed you, is that you love things you didn't love before. That you relate in ways that you, you didn't relate before. That you choose things you would not have chosen before. You've been changed. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed Everything. Not only did it transform the the group of people that had been around Jesus, that had walked all the way up to the crucifixion, that had witnessed his death, those who who got to see him resurrected, it didn't just change that that small band of people. No, it, it changed many. It changed those who heard the story from them. Their lives were altered forever. And this morning's passage, Steve just read for us, we see that the resurrected Jesus changed one of the most unlikely characters, one of the all-time skeptics, one of the greatest opponents to Christianity. The resurrected Jesus changed him. Now, if you grew up in the church, you know the story of Saul. Maybe you acted it out in your Sunday school classroom and like scales falling from your eyes and pretending to be the light. And um, so, so maybe you heard that and you're like, right, 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 Saul, light. Didn't happen to anybody else. Very unique. But I, I want you to, for, for a minute, I want you to just imagine with me that you, that you're Saul's best friend growing up. You're his childhood best friend. Uh, you grew up together in Tarsus. That you know your your dad had the his dad sorry his dad had the tent store right here, and your dad had the the silversmith silversmith store over here, and and then you guys used to play together. They used to go to the same synagogue and. And then, of course, the two of you used to, to get in trouble together. You, you'd go over to the, to the temple of the Hellenists, and you'd untie, the, you'd untie all the donkeys, and you'd get them to run through the city and laugh. Of course, until you got caught, which was a marking thing for you because you're such a good kid. And, of course, Saul finds himself in this moment. Of course, he would be the kind that would, that would, that would step forward. He'd say, I want the full brunt of it. Give me the full extent of the law. I did it. I own it. I deserve the full amount. Do what must be done. Now, like any normal kid, you would be the kind of kid that kind of resents whatever punishment you get, but not 
not Saul. He was the kind who felt like he was earning something as he was receiving his just punishment. Like he was, like he was building something. When Saul's family moved to uh, Jerusalem from Tarsus so that, so that he could enter into firm and, and strong training in Judaism, you got to tag along. You didn't like Tarsus, so you just came along. For years, your studies weren't awesome, but Saul right away distinguished himself. Of course he would. You discovered what you already, already knew, and that is that he was something special. He was one of a kind. Of course, he distinguished himself through his studies, and he became one of the greatest arguers of all the schools in Jerusalem. He had a way, he had a way of being able to think both as a Roman citizen, he could think as a, as a Greek philosopher, and he could also think as a Jewish lawyer. He was all three of those packaged together. He was like no other. But what was more noteworthy than how great he could compose his arguments was, was how he lived his life. He had a way of just doing everything right, of, of being blameless, it would seem. I mean, not only did he memorize all 613 laws of the Torah, which, of course, he could recite from, from memory, but he seemed to obey them so strictly. There was no wiggle room. Of course, all the other students either resented it or were impressed by him, and all the teachers, of course, clapped and celebrated him. He could pray longer and fast more ardently than any of the others, including you. Eventually, Saul's zeal got him connected in with the best, most impressive rabbi in Jerusalem, Gamaliel, who was not who's notorious for, for centuries, actually, even after his time in power. He was influential and respected in Jerusalem, and this was kind of Saul's final step to his meteoric rise to power. He was part of the group that had influence. He was like the great hope for the next party of the Pharisees. Saul's name was known from the, the court of the Sanhedrin to the table of the high priest. And then in the midst of all, this, all these accolades, all this, all this meteoric rise, there's this, there's this Jesus of Nazareth who gets crucified on Passover weekend. For most of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's like, finally. It seems like it's over. And he was some self-proclaimed Messiah, but... But he's dead now and all shall be well. But unfortunately, both through the surprise of many of the Pharisees and priests, that's not how it went. Jesus' followers didn't fade away. As a matter of fact, it seemed like they suddenly just exploded all over Jerusalem. They're everywhere. They're doing this, these powerful teachings. There's, there's like miraculous signs. There's, um, there's devout Jews that you that everyone knows. They're like, wait, wait, hold on. You're you're like a like a real like committed to Judaism Jew that are becoming these Christians this way this hadas like they're suddenly taking on this this new way of being. Not only is there incredible teaching, there are these miracles, but there's this whisper in the marketplace that that maybe the power of God has come. That apparently, or supposedly, this Jesus is, he's risen. That he's not dead. But what's fascinating for you is every time you bring up this conversation with Saul, your friend, he is furious. I mean, furious. 
He's enraged at the prospect that anyone could think that sins could be forgiven in any way other than strict obedience to the law. It's the only way. How could anyone dare pollute his faith with anything else? Oh, he was passionate. Everything seemed to come to a head on the day that Stephen died, on the day that he was stoned. This is one of those Christians, things that escalated and and, and you were there too. Maybe you were one of those who, since your buddies with Saul, you laid your coat at his feet. And, and, and maybe you're one of those who also picked up a stone. Maybe you're one of those who, who, who watched Stephen's face shine as he looked up. Maybe you're one of those who got to hear him say, Father, forgive them. But not Saul. He was unmoved by any of that. If anything, it seems like that day just ignited a real brand new passionate flame he understood, it seems suddenly, the to- with total clarity, what his purpose was. He was going to be the one who purified Judaism from this crazy sect. He was going to get rid of the Carpenter Messiah story and his ragtag band of followers. And so he gather- gathers you and, and a couple of other young, excited, devout Pharisees. He, he gathers some of the, the, the temple guard, and, and you all go, and you start kicking indoors. Start busting into homes, you start dragging men and women out, and you start throwing them in prison. And some of them are beaten, and, and some of them die. Now, you and almost everybody else starts feeling like, okay, we scattered them. With all this persecution, they just took off. They found themselves this, this way, people. They, they took off and found themselves all the way from, from Judea to Samaria. They, they're gone. It's, it's well. We've, we've done our work, but, but not Saul. It was not enough. His fervor, his fervor to see everyone who would, who would assault the traditions of the father, not receiving their just due, that the thought of that was just inconceivable. And so he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters, letters that would draw anyone from as far as Damascus all the way back to Jerusalem to face trial, to be put in prison and to suffer their just consequence. And so letters in hand and a sword on his side. Saul begins his six-day journey to Damascus. But for you, you've had enough. You've been as zealous as you can be. You've heard from your father. It's time to come home. And so Saul goes off and you remain in Jerusalem a couple days. And then you head back, head back to Tarsus, head back to home. It's the last time you see Saul. But it's not that last time that you hear about him. Because what you hear in the months that follows is unbelievable. It's incomprehensible. Saul, like Saul, your buddy Saul, Saul of Tarsus, has become a follower of Jesus. It's impossible. How is this possible? What possibly could have happened to bring about the unthinkable? Well, as we read this morning, on the road to Damascus, Saul meets the risen Jesus. Saul encounters the risen Christ, and Saul is a changed man. He was one who unilaterally, suddenly abandons the very task that he was there to accomplish, a task that not only brought him notoriety and, and a name amongst his people, but it gave him prestige and reputation amongst all those who had power all those who had fortune, all those who could do something for him, and he just 
He abandoned that. Not only did he abandon his mission to thwart those who would claim Christ, but, and this is crazy, but he picks up the mantle himself. He, he starts going around telling people that Jesus is the Christ. We saw it in verse 22 when he said, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Something happened to Saul. Saul saw the resurrected Jesus. He, he heard his voice. And simultaneously, as he saw the resurrected Jesus and as he, as he heard his voice, he saw himself rightly for the first time. What he was really about, what his boast truly was, what he was striving for. And he saw it in light of who the Messiah really was, the true Savior, who hadn't just risen from the dead and displayed himself to him. No, he'd also died for this scum, Saul, who was persecuting him, who was seeking to kill those that followed him. He was a risen Savior, and he was a sacrificial Savior. Saul met the risen Christ. Scales fell from his eyes, and it changed everything about him. And that's what the resurrection does. It changes everything about us. It makes what was important, not important. It makes me being at the center of all things, not the truest reality. I'm no longer the main thing. It makes us people who are willing to live boldly to to take risks with our, our lives, to give our things and to give ourselves away to other people and to die to ourselves for him. Makes us the kind of people willing to die, to become nothing. Because Jesus isn't just some idea. He's not just some ethereal, ethereal um, personhood. No, no, he's a person the real true savior, our risen king. Uh, years later, Saul, who's now called by his Roman name, Paul, at this point, he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi from his cell in prison. Now, he, he starts the section by, by trying to make a very clear point and pointing to the fact that like, he has serious credentials. He's someone who, who deserves all the acclaim possible and necessary, that, that he's a Jew, or an impressive Jew. He's circumcised on the eighth day like you should be. He's, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, that, that he's someone who is from the chosen people of Israel, that he's a Pharisee, which means that he holds the law higher than everybody else, and that he was blameless in accordance with the law and all of its requirements, which anybody who knew him would agree to. And after having laid out this impressive resume, he writes this in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Jesus was and had become enough for Saul. He didn't have to guess at the whether or not he was acceptable or, or good enough. He didn't have to perform. He didn't have to resent God that he had claim over his life. He didn't have to be his own savior anymore. He didn't have to be the Lord of his life. Saul, Paul had become free. And that's what we get to be as people of the resurrection. You see, we are a people of the resurrection. And, and like Saul, we've been convinced by, by, reading the, by reading the gospel accounts and seeing the, the life and the, and, the, and the miracles and ministry and, and the death of Jesus We've, we've read the accounts of how, how he fulfilled Old, Old Testament prophecy, one after another after another. We, we read the accounts of the witnesses, and again, not, not just the 12 or 15 that were around him most. No, no, over 500 we just read that saw him alive. And these were people that, they didn't just say, yeah, yeah, I think I saw him alive. It's a real good thing. No, these are the kinds of people that ended up willing to give their, their lives, that, that their livelihoods ended up being at stake because of their declaration of this witness. They were willing to sacrifice family and freedom in their very life. Michael Green from uh, St. John's College observed that the resurrection was the belief that turned heartbroken followers of a crucified rabbi into courageous witnesses and martyrs of the early church. Oh, you could imprison them, flog them, kill them, but you could not make them deny their conviction that on the third day he rose again. We're a people of the resurrection. And just like Saul, we've encountered the risen Christ firsthand. We've heard his voice through the word. We've, we've witnessed as we've heard the voice of the spirit tell us that we are indeed his sons and daughters. And we've gotten to see that kind of change in other people around us. Some of you have seen it in your spouses or in your friends. I've seen it in people in this very room. Resurrected life alive in us. But maybe most unlikely of all, we've seen change and seen his resurrected life change us. A little while back, um, my wife Becky asked me the question. We were talking about some people in our life that we know and that we love and that are really struggling. And, um, and as we talked, she said, Matt, why do you think that you're able to, to have hope for these, for people, people who've, who've walked away from the faith or, or people who just have no interest in Jesus in any way or, or, or people who actually are like legit against the faith. Like what, why do you, how, how do you have hope for them? I didn't expect the question. And so I just, I thought for a little bit wondering. And finally, the more I thought, next thing you know, I have tears in my eyes. And I said, Reb, you know, I think the reason is, is because if, if he can rescue me, if he can find me, if he can lead me towards him, then I think he can find anyone. He can rescue anyone. He can lead anyone. Perhaps the greatest testimony of the resurrection is how he is changing you. Loved ones, 
Jesus Christ is risen. He is the risen Lord today. And through his resurrection on Easter morning, God was doing two things. He was not only demonstrating that what Jesus did on the cross on Friday, that it counted, that it had effect, that indeed sins were forgiven, that the account had been washed clean, that it was well with your soul. He was confirming the reality of Christ's sacrifice. But in the resurrection, something else is true. There's this visible risen Savior that God gives us so that we can have not only power in this life, but hope into the future. We get to see, in a sense, firsthand the first fruits that Joel talked about. First fruits amongst many brothers. This is, this is a snapshot, a, a glimpse into what is true for us, that we have been indeed re- been remade into newness of life, and more so that there is a day coming when we shall ra- be raised with him. And so we have power today, and we have hope for the future As Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then we have no hope. Oh, but loved ones, we have hope because Christ is risen today. If you're here and and you're not convinced, you're not convinced about Jesus or honestly, maybe you're not convinced anymore. Maybe, maybe you grew up in the church or maybe you were drugged to church. Maybe, maybe you've kind of gotten past that. And, and I, I just, I this morning want to just plead with you that, that you would consider Jesus again. Or maybe consider Jesus for the first time. It's possible that you can watch Supersize Me and still eat a Big Mac or not, whatever. You can watch True, True Cost and it may or may not affect the way in which you you buy clothes or, or don't buy clothes. But those are secondary matters. There is a primary matter. There's something that's unbelievably important. And the magnitude of the claim, the magnitude of the claim that Jesus is God and that he both died for you and rose, the magnitude of that claim combined with the fact that it has an effect on everything about your life and everything about your future it, it demands an earnest pursuit. It demands a, an honest evaluation all the way through. You, you have to know that you know that you know. Even if you know that you know that no, you have to know. Do you know? You must. You must. If, if that's you, if you're, if you're someone who's, had, you know, I haven't thought about this in a long time. I don't, I don't really want to think about this anymore. And, and you find yourself realizing, you know what? I'm kind of going at this with a, I think it'll all work out in the end. I would say, let's talk about that. Because I think so is, is a pretty significantly challenging thing when you're talking about ultimate reality and your ultimate future. And so that little white card we talked about, like if you want to write on there, like I'd like to talk about faith. I'd like to talk about Jesus. Or I'd like to talk about Christianity, even if it's just to argue. Write it down, put your name on there, and we'll grab some coffee. It matters too much. Christianity believes that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus. It mattered that much to him. And for those of us who who believe and hold Christ, he matters that much. And so, loved ones, one of the things that you get challenged with on on a resurrection Sunday is he has risen to be king of your life. 
Is he the king of your life? Is all that you have in submission to him? Is he really the risen savior? He must be. It's where your real life is. Christ, Paul says, who is your life. So brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the son of God died on a Friday and he rose from the dead on a Sunday. And that one weekend in 30 AD changed the course of the world. It changed the very life of this Saul, unlikely, and it is the best news on this Resurrection Sunday, not just for today, but for every day in the future, and ultimately for how eternity will play itself out as we anticipate seeing him face to face when we are raised with him. And so with great joy this morning, I remind you that he is risen. Let's pray. Father, I am I'm struck by the fact that you that you will go after the most unlikely. I know we're all the most unlikely. But sometimes it seems like there is no way that anyone who's this opposed to you would ever open their heart to you. And yet you have changed us. You have pursued us. And those of us who have turned our lives over to you, who've put our faith in you, we can look back and say, it was not us. Would not have chosen you, but you chose us. Thank you. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to be able to see and know the beauty and power of your resurrection that we would live a resurrected life in our Monday through Saturday in, in a way that, that allows an entire world to see that you are the most precious, beautiful, powerful, and life-giving thing. There is no one like you. And therefore, you're worthy of worship and praise. And you're worthy for us to give our whole lives to you. Now, we're not fools, no. So thank you. Thank you for being worthy. Thank you, Father for raising Jesus from the dead on the third day, that we may have life in his name. And so it's in his name that we praise you and thank you and offer all these things. Christ, our Savior. Amen.